Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I have another episode of the podcast for you guys. Um, I have been more than a little off balance. I think I mentioned, I don't know how much I mentioned uh, the sort of elements that are uh, going on in my real life in recent episodes, which is to say, in particular, um, I think I have mentioned that I suffer from pretty intense seasonal allergies um, living here in Central Texas. And um, one of the results of that is, you know, feeling not very good at times, um, just, you know, based on that. Um, and in particular, there's this kind of a couple of things that sort of come from that set of uh, issues and I'm, I'm working on figuring out better kind of long-term solutions around uh, seasonal allergies and all of that sort of stuff. But for now, the result is basically that uh, last week I got very little done. This week I've gotten a little bit more done. It's it's Wednesday today. Um, and I've gotten more done this week so far than I got done all of last week. But I'm still definitely not 100%. Um, and... Uh, I think, um, well, uh, I'm going to talk basically, so today's episode is uh, not going to be a call and response episode. That's going to be the next episode. I have a bunch of calls that I want to respond to, um, and it's all kind of interesting stuff that I would like to talk about, but today's episode is just going to be sort of a uh, kind of uh, updates episode, I guess, talking about kind of what's going on with me, what um, what I've been thinking about, all of that sort of stuff, and um, we shall see. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm just going to talk for a little while at the computer, like usual, and you guys can listen if you'd like. If you wouldn't like, that's fine too, you know, just do whatever you like. Anyway, um, yeah, let's get into it. All right, so um, I'm going to talk a little more about kind of health stuff and allergies um, for a little bit. Um, basically, one uh, so essentially there are, there are a number of things that are um, major factors in this sort of thing, but one of them is just the kind of um, seasonal uh, patterns of vegetation in Central Texas. Right, that's a, a pretty major factor, um, but. Basically, um, it comes down to it's sort of a, there's a, a sort of period in the fall and a period in the spring that are sort of the really bad stuff. And the rest of the year, there's often a, a little bit of um, 
stuff in the air that is not so good for me, but not nearly as much. Um, so I take a, an antihistamine every day at this point, um, but I'm sort of working on uh, basically working on talking with my doctor about what might be kind of appropriate sort of next steps for lack of a better term. Uh, like, so in, in particular, the, the one I take is Claritin and um, the bottle says, you know, don't take more than one pill in 24 hours and each pill is 10 milligrams. But it also says that it's acceptable to take for you know, children over the age of six or adults. And I'm like, okay, so if a six-year-old can take one pill, um, seems likely that I could handle, you know, two or even three just based on kind of, you know, body weight, right? Similar to, right? Because a, a lot of stuff, there is a measure of effect based on kind of concentration in the blood, right? The, the same way that um, alcohol is processed a little differently based on body weight. And obviously, there's kind of useful and non-useful body weight in that direction, which is to say that, you know, fat cells are not as useful for uh, alcohol stuff, but having, you know, more your blood alcohol content is based on kind of how much alcohol you put in and how much blood you have, right? That's sort of the basic idea. So, you know, being fat doesn't necessarily help a lot with that, but being just kind of, you know, bigger, taller, and and in my case, wider too, often um, does sort of help with that sort of thing. Although then there's all sorts of other factors that go into that, um, like the way that antidepressants basically make you feel the effects of alcohol much more strongly, which is a whole fun thing. Um, that's why the pharmacist always says, and ideally no alcohol when I pick up my antidepressants. Um, anyway, um, basically the, the idea being that I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, talking to my doctor about kind of what would be appropriate, especially because one of the other things I found out about is there's a specific, uh, term and I can't think of, it's called like histamine shock or something. And it refers to, excuse me, basically the way that your body's kind of metabolic function changes from suffering from allergies all the time, even at a kind of low level. And um, there are a number of kind of common symptoms that seem to apply to. They're just uh, things that I thought were just the way my body worked. Um, in particular, lower core body temperature, my um, internal temperature generally hovers around 96 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, whereas the, the sort of norm, right, is 98.6. That's the sort of standard, I guess you might say 98 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. So two and a half degrees Fahrenheit obviously is not um, a huge amount on the kind of, you know, grand scale. But I suspect that that's probably more than most doctors would say is healthy to be running cool, um, especially long term. And, and that's basically just where my internal body temperature stays at. And I always thought that that was just, okay, well, that's just the way my body works. But I wonder, um, I'm, I'm sort of talking to my doctor about, well, could this be related to having kind of, you know, a low level of allergies all the time? And that that's, you know, a, a, a pretty core symptom of that kind of uh, histamine overload in your body. 
um, apparently. And so we're working on figuring that out. But at present, basically, it's uh, not feeling 100% by any means. Um, I mean, even this morning, I woke up at about 7.30 or 8, like normal. It's about when I've been waking up without an alarm. Um, and then I basically got up and got a drink of water and thought, I feel awful. I'm going to lie back down and slept until about 1030. Um, which is, you know, I think it's, you know, important to listen to your body and what your body needs. But also, I would really rather that my body didn't need the extra couple hours sleep um, to function. And therefore, there's sort of a, a back and forth there. Um I think it was the right decision, but I just I just wish it wasn't the right decision, I guess, rather than feeling like it was the wrong decision. Um, but that ties into um, one of the good things that has come out of this is that for all the kind of problems of not feeling very good based on allergies, I think it has been a pretty good demonstration of the uh the value of a number of the habits that i've been working on excuse me and in particular that it has been a really good demonstration of the kind of style of habits that i am trying to cultivate um which is to say that i am trying to work on a concept that i for myself have described as resilient habits. And the idea behind resilient habits is basically habits that don't depend on a streak to maintain them. Um, and the idea being that often, you know, for instance, historically, with my various exercise routines, the periods of my life when I have been able to exercise really regularly, often I have kind of like set a deliberate schedule, say like, okay, I'm going to, you know, lift weights Monday, Wednesday, Friday, something like that. And that's going to be my schedule. But then one of the things that has happened with me is that I have not been very good about maintaining that pattern after failing to maintain it, which is to say that I think one of the things that just happens with the, the way I do things is that, you know, if I kind of set a pattern and then, you know, miss a day, right? If I'm, you know, doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, weightlifting, and then I, you know, miss on Friday because I'm not feeling very good or, you know, I got a cold or something. Well, when it comes around to Monday, it'll be much, much harder for me to kind of restart the pattern than um, if I had been able to kind of push through on Friday. And I think the problem with that is the, the inherent inflexibility, right? That I think there are, you know, times when you need to take a break on Friday because, right, you caught a cold. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to, to you know, push through and do a full workout while you're, you know, suffering from illness, right? That's just silly. Um, and so what I've been trying to work on is the idea of resilient habits and resilient habits for me are basically a descriptor of habits where, um, rather than kind of falling apart after missing the pattern, trying to figure out how to make it easy to get back into the habit. Um, and there are a number of ways that I 
sort of think about this, you know, one of them is, you know, don't throw good money after bad money, right? And, and another way to put something similar is what my dad said is, you know, don't, don't let a, a minor mistake become a major mistake just because you already made a mistake, right? And the idea being, I think it's one of the things that I can end up with where I get um, demoralized by something and feel like, oh, I already, you know, failed to get the kind of full 100% that I wanted. So why bother continuing to get it? And I'm really embracing the idea that, you know, uh, 50% is better than 0%, 70% is better than 50%, 100% is better than 70%. But if, you know, if it's a choice between, you know, a 70% or a 50% and a 0%, much better to get the 50% or the 70% of what your expectations were than to get the 0%. And um, along those lines, I think it's really telling that today, even though I was really tired, I had planned on having today be, you know, kind of do at least some exercise back in kind of the regular pattern um, that I, I exercised last Monday, nine days ago, and then basically haven't done any of my kind of regular exercise patterns since until this morning. And that um, on Monday this week, I sort of said, you know what, I don't think I'm ready to kind of get back into the full pattern, but I would like to kind of set a, a time, a target for getting back into exercising. So let's say Wednesday as the target. Um, and that today I really feel like doing that. And it's kind of a, I think a really positive testament to that kind of habit resiliency that rather than feeling like, oh, I really don't want to, in this case, get on the rowing machine and do some rowing, um, that I right now I'm feeling like, yeah, let's, you know, I still don't feel a hundred percent, but you know, I really feel like I would, you know, benefit from getting on the rowing machine and do some rowing. And that, that's a really kind of wonderful feeling in a lot of ways, right? That sort of, positive, uh, you know, I'm ready to, you know, take on some challenges and get back into it and all of that sort of stuff. And I think it's a, a testament both to how much the regular exercise has been helping my kind of mental and physical health, um, as well as the kind of benefit of this sort of focused attempts to develop, uh, habit resiliency. Um, anyway, so that's uh, the sort of complicated stuff that is going on with me that I still don't feel very good because my allergies are still in pretty significant force. I'm working on figuring out what might be done about that sort of thing um, with my doctor, but we don't have a solution right now um, beyond taking extra Claritin, which I, it's one of those things that the bottle says not to do. So the kind of, doing a bit of research suggests that the bottle is significantly overstating the kind of degree to which do not do so is uh appropriate which is to say that a lot of the um a lot of the danger that comes from antihistamines and potential overdose comes from the fact that antihistamines so histamines are a neurotransmitter and um, antihistamines have an effect on all neurotransmitters, not just on histamines, which is um, 
part of why, for instance, there are there are different generations of antihistamines. Um, so like Benadryl is something that I took for a long time because it's really, really strong, but it can also make you really sleepy because it crosses, it basically um, gets in your brain a lot faster than some of the more modern antihistamines that do a better job of targeting places other than your brain um, and therefore not affecting all your neurotransmitters because Benadryl will basically, you know, literally slow your thoughts down with the way that it affects your other neurotransmitters. Um, and the, the point of that being that that's part of why antihistamine overdose can be dangerous is because, you know, if you do, if you put too much of that in your system and it gets into your brain, your brain's going to have trouble doing all the things it's supposed to do. So you can, you can full on um, die from that. I mean, one of the, you know, if you take, you know, a, a huge amount of Benadryl, you can actually basically uh, stop your um, automatic processes and essentially stop your heart and your breathing just because the brain isn't sending, isn't processing the way that it should be. And you just, you know, die from, from not getting the the automatic processes that your brain needs to happen to keep everything running. Um, but the amount of antihistamines you need to hit that point is pretty significant. Um, and therefore it's, it's different for everybody, right? Cause people have different kind of vulnerabilities with regard to those sorts of things and all of that, but it, it is a kind of, it's one of those things that, you know, there is a measure of, of difference. So, um, basically I, I want to talk to my doctor, especially about the kind of potential long-term effects of like taking two Claritin a day instead of one. Um, but for right now, that's been something that I've sort of had as uh, in my back pocket. Last Friday, I took a second Claritin um, and felt great. And then what happened was basically overnight when I was sleeping, it basically wore off and I slept until about noon because of essentially the 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 counterattack from the allergies essentially from while I was asleep. So um, obviously doing that on the regular is probably not a great plan, but it is sort of a, you know, a, a, another option kind of ace in the hole to, to deal with some of those problems. So I'm, I need to talk with my doctor more about what works and what doesn't, but Anyway, all of that is to say that my um, general health is not perfect by any means, my, my physical, although it is a kind of interesting thing, because unlike normally, it's my physical health that is suffering, not my mental health, that my mental health is still pretty good, um, which is nice. And um, yeah, so... I don't know. We'll see what comes out of all of this. If you have any suggestions, you know, if you suffer from serious seasonal allergies and have a solution, let me know. Um, uh, a lot of the things, I mean, like I, I have a, you know, saline nasal spray that I use a lot to try to wash out my sinuses um, because that's something that I did even from when I was a kid. Um, and then I have various kind of, uh, direct target antihistamine little sprays to try to help with runny nose and stuff. And anyway, basically what I'm saying is that I've got a number of sort of 
things that I do that help. But if you have any suggestions for further things that might help, let me know, because it would be great to hear those. Otherwise, I think we will get into some other stuff. All right, I am back. It is uh, not just after that last recording session, but actually basically a day later, I um, got distracted with other things and ended up uh, working on those instead of working on the podcast stuff. So um, anyway, but um, yeah, I, uh, I'm feeling a fair bit better today. I, there's still a lot of stuff in the air, but I, um, I did exercise yesterday. I did like eight minutes on the rowing machine, which is not a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, but it is definitely better than nothing. And was, to be honest, a little more than I expected to do. Um, considering how I had been feeling, which is to say that I, um, my, my goal yesterday was about five minutes. So eight minutes is better than that. Um, anyway, it was good because it was like the first, um, kind of exercise more serious than walking that I have done since last Monday, like, you know, a week and a half ago. So, um, like I said, really speaks to, I think, the kind of um, habit resiliency that I have been working on a lot. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, so anyway, um, I thought I would talk about some of the other stuff that is going on with me. Um, there are a couple of things. So one thing is that I got my slain stuff from warlord games for those of you who do not remember warlord games the uh british uh wargaming company licensed a game from rebellion for the 2080 comics property slain which is a comics property that i am uh, interested in even if not kind of an expert on um, but i think it's pretty cool and uh, i ended up getting the big box the the, the full everything pre-order bundle that was i think like 250 dollars or something um, which is probably more than i should have spent but I wanted it, and so, uh, yeah, it's one of those, um, things that, um, yeah, who knows how much use I'm going to get out of the stuff, but I wanted it, so I got it, um, because I'm an adult, and I can do that, um, and more generally, it's just, you know, yeah, I, I think that that stuff is really cool. The, the The sculpts look really awesome, and they look really awesome in person. I can't wait to get busy painting them, even though it's going to take me forever because I'm such a slow painter um, and not a very good painter, which is part of why I'm slow, is that it, it takes a whole lot of kind of really kind of maintained focus long term to uh paint well in my case and that's that's the big reason that it's slow is not that kind of it takes a long time to put paint on plastic it's that it takes a long time to put paint on plastic well 
right? That's the, like a lot of things, right? If you're not concerned about quality, you can go much faster the same way that, you know, if you don't care about, you know, the quality of the words you're writing, you can, you know, write thousands of words a day, no problem. If you're concerned about writing, you know, quality words, it's much, much harder to write that many words in a day, right? So it's just one of those things, um, as with lots of things, right? That, you know, making quality things requires patience and focus often, and those are limited resources. Anyway, um, the point of all of that is just to say, so I, I did an unboxing for the big slain box on my YouTube channel um, recently. So if you're interested in that property, go feel free to check that out. It's, uh, yeah, pretty cool. Um, Otherwise, what else has been going on with me? I've got a couple of sort of irons in the fire at present. Um, I've got a, a couple of projects that I want to work on. Um, I've continued to do a little bit of work on some of my own kind of game design things. Um, I'm really, I've really been enjoying playing solo play with fate uh fate condensed is the sort of core rule set for my america the multiverse scheme um and um i've made a number of kind of tinkering changes to it um that i think work pretty well um i don't know that they're all things that i would do in like a group game but i do think there are um you know there's some good stuff in a number of those changes, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's got me thinking about doing my own sort of thing that, that fate is very much a um, toolkit sort of thing that, you know, it's, it's, um, there are sort of, you know, particular expressions of fate in particular games. So there's the, the fate worlds books that are not kind of quite like, you know, the whole thing, but add stuff to a game so that, like, if you want to play in a particular style, you've got sort of more stuff to do that. Um, and then there's also some of the kind of specific games, so like the Atomic Robo RPG and the Dresden Files RPG, which apparently Dresden Files Accelerated is the one that is um, the, the best expression of kind of fate as a complete game in some ways, at least according to... Um, some of the stuff that I was reading about um, that particular game system that 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 one in particular is apparently pretty popular because it includes kind of um, it's sort of based on the accelerated stuff, but it also has a number of kind of uh, specific rules based on the sort of Dresden files content that also give you a good idea of kind of how to build that sort of stuff yourself. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's just one of those things that, uh, is cool. Um, I've been tinkering with one of the ideas that I've had is to do some stuff with that sort of core fudge system, but, or, or core fate fudge system, but with some kind of uh, 
specific design elements, especially with regard to kind of um, like the idea of not a one of the things that I think is a, a classic kind of element of design is the difference between having, you know, like a, a set of skills that covers everything that a person might do and a set of skills that cover everything that you are expected to do in the game, that those are two different things. Um, and it, I, I think it speaks to, you know, in the same way, like, I think that's part of the idea of classes in a lot of older school games that, you know, the, the class is designed to sort of give you a, a package of here's what you do. And you, you know, if you embrace that, you get into, okay, so like a fighter knows how to ride a horse, because that's just part of what, like being a knight is like that sort of thing um that you don't necessarily need like a specific animal handling check and i'm not entirely sure kind of how much i buy into all of that because i think there are some um bits and pieces of that that i just i sort of feel like eh, i'm not entirely sure if i um am i i feel like for me it is a benefit to have some more kind of explicit expectations around some of those things, um, both as a game master and as a player, and that therefore having a, a sort of skill list is helpful. Um, and I, I've seen a couple of good ones. In particular, I was talking with some friends on Discord about the um, skill list for P6 Harn, which is a version of, so E6 is um, basically Pat, not Pathfinder, it's it's D&D 3.5, but you only go up to sixth level and then you can still advance further, but you stop basically at a certain point. And then there's P6, which is sort of the Pathfinder version of that. And then there's a number of other kind of things that, uh, people have done with that, including this P6 Harn, which is designed for playing in the world of Harn, but with the kind of, you know, P6 structure instead of Harn Master, um, which is unsurprising because Harn Master is a mess. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just making fun of Harn Master a little bit, but um, I do think there are some kind of odd issues with Harn Master, although I also, having kind of looked at some other stuff i would really like to go back to harn master and see if there isn't a way to kind of tinker with some of the pieces to try to basically kind of bring some of the elements into a kind of direction that i think would be better basically um which is to say that um there are some kind of or, well, basically, uh, there are some elements of Harn Master that I think are uh, not so good, especially the way that you have uh, a lot of die rolling in certain situations without a lot of kind of player involvement, which is to say that, you know, uh, the, the player basically just says, I attack the enemy with my sword um, and they can say, well, I attack, you know, uh, high or low, but there's not a lot of um, other stuff you 
get to do, but then you have a whole series of, you know, roll to hit and then roll to see, you know, the hit location and then roll to see your damage and all of that sort of stuff. And it's just kind of a little odd that there's so much kind of um, die rolling for so little kind of player interaction, which kind of gets into sort of my kind of stuff about gaming philosophy that, you know, the idea of a game as a, uh, you know, an RPG is defined for me by the idea of players making, you know, uh, meaningful decisions and that therefore, um, if the players, you know, don't really have any kind of things to grab onto for making decisions, then, you know, what's the point of all these die rolls that, you know, don't really, you know, give the players any chance to, you know, decide very much at all, right? Which is sort of my thing about Harn Master. But I have been thinking a lot about Harn Master <coughs> recently, especially the way in which Harn Master, I think, does something really cool with regard to um, health and especially shock, which is to say that um, it's one of those things that I think most games do not do very well at all, representing the idea of the kind of, um, you know, physicality of the character who is injured. Um, and that oftentimes I think really gets into the um, kind of ways in which hit points are, you know, kind of a, a for lack of a better term, a, a convenient um, abstraction that is a little bit um, inconsistent at best, I think is what I will say, which is to say that uh, the people who argue that hit points are just like, you know, narrow dodges and all of that sort of stuff, I think that's fine until you get into the question of, okay, so, you know, why does falling from a great height do hit point damage? Because, uh, you know, there's some, some obvious questions there. It's not like you can, you know, dodge the ground at the last second as you fall. You can sort of fall in a way that kind of, you know, is likely to be less damaging, right? There, there are ways to fall that are not going to hurt you as much, which is to say, kind of depending on the, the height that you're falling from and what you're falling onto, you can kind of do some stuff, but a lot of that is dependent on the kind of, you know, way that you leave the ground in the first place. So it, which is to say, like, you know, it's a different thing to sort of jump, like, you know, towards a, a long fall versus to be like, you know, knocked off a ledge and take a long fall, which is just one of those things that I think is, you know, questionable. Um, anyway, all of that is just to say that, again, I think, you know, hit points are kind of a convenient abstraction and that therefore they um, don't often do a great job of, I think, think reflecting the idea of the sort of like physicality of the character that is involved in combat um which is not I, I i'm not trying to be kind of pejorative about that which is to say that i don't think that is necessarily a, a bug all the time and that's you know sometimes a bug sometimes a feature 
is kind of a way to put that, which is to say that if what you want is kind of like a fun, you know, mess around and dungeon crawl type experience, that that's perfect because you you're not kind of getting into this kind of, you know, difficulty of suffering and pain and, and all of that kind of experiential stuff nearly as much. But if what you want is that kind of, you know, experience of the character that hit points kind of are a, a flawed way to do that is in my opinion how i would get at that so anyway and and all of that is to say that i've been looking at hard master again specifically for the shock rules which is to say that from playing hard master for a little while one of the things that we found was that um most combat resolved not with death but with non-function due to shock basically which is kind of a a cool thing that you know most of the time when the player characters defeated enemies they were defeated not by you know taking them down to zero hit points essentially but by basically putting enough hits on the enemy that they succumbed to pain and shock and basically we're not going to be able to be kind of functional anymore right which is kind of a, a, a important difference right there's something meaningfully different there um that is kind of cool and interesting i think and so I'm, I'm really interested in sort of trying to figure out how to reflect that in a game that isn't hard master basically or to take hard master and do something kind of different with it i know there are a couple other games that do stuff like that in particular i know that burning wheel does something very much like that um with the the combat mechanics the the fight mechanics have a whole kind of uh resist pain role that basically is like you know you can lose a fight not because you have been you know cut down or run through or anything like that but because you basically have succumbed to the pain of uh fighting and therefore are not going to be able to function anymore um and there's something similar in some of the sort of riddle of steel like rules that i used um by default, a lot of them don't have specific rules for what happens when a character is suffering from so much pain that they can't function anymore. But they do have that level, which is to say that um, in a lot of them, there's a system where basically the pain of a wound causes a character to lose um, dice from their pool to be able to do things with because... Um, combat is built on dice pools where you you spend dice from your pool to do things um and basically the idea being that there is a point where you know a character can potentially not necessarily be kind of you know dead from wounds but is sort of non-functional from pain and the way i resolved that when i was running um sword and scoundrel was that that was the point at which the um the combatant drops their weapons and and basically surrenders right that that's like a a gladiator that puts up the fingers for mercy type thing um because i felt like that was a good way because it felt really silly the idea of a character kind of you know standing there and trying to keep fighting and just basically standing there and waiting to get run through that it was a, a much better solution to say that okay once a character basically hits zero dice from pain 
they're out of the fight and that's either, you know, they've surrendered or they've just, you know, collapsed to the ground and are basically in shock and need medical treatment or however you want to kind of resolve that in a specific situation, um, that that's, uh, the, that's basically how that worked in my game. And I felt like that worked pretty well, um, especially for that sort of more kind of realistic style of play where it's not just about, you know, running people through. It's also about kind of, you know, pain and, and suffering and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, as, as was Bane saying, the dark Knight rises, I wondered which would break first your spirit or your body. That was not a very good Bane, but you know, anyway. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that kind of idea in a number of ways, trying to kind of figure out how to model that sort of thing. Um, and I've got a couple of ideas for doing that. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to sort of keep those a little closer to the chest right now and not necessarily talk that much about them, partly because none of them are particularly finished at this point. And so it's very kind of rough tinkering rather than kind of like a, a presented specific idea in some ways. So anyway, all of that is to say that, um, yeah, I am, uh, working on that sort of thing. All right, um, so there are a couple of more things that I am thinking about. Um, I'm working on this uh, um, new bi-weekly Saturday game that has had some trouble kind of getting off the ground. Um, the, the world's not rules game, as I was calling it, um, I'm, I'm putting in some work in there, um, but I need to put some more in, um, because I am just kind of a little bit behind basically where I want to be, um, especially from feeling uh, sick last week, I got, you know, basically nothing done. And um, then, of course, had to, you know, make up work time when so it, it sort of hits the hobby double, right, is that not only am I not getting hobby stuff done um, because I'm feeling sick, but also because I'm not getting work done, I need to put in other time that would otherwise be hobby time as work time. So it's, you know, not so good for prepping games. Um, it's not the end of the world by any means. I mean, there'll be plenty of other opportunities to prep games, but I just, you know, need to put some time in soon. Um, otherwise, I've, uh, so yeah, I've been working a little bit on that. Um, we have sort of, we've, we decided to use, um, a setting that I call Leervog for that, which I'm excited about returning to because I've done some other stuff with Leervog. Um, but that was all kind of solo stuff. Um, I am kind of tinkering with what system to use because I had originally said that we would definitely use Hyperborea 3rd Edition, which I think is a good game in a lot of ways, but there are a 
there are some changes to between second edition and third edition that I quite like, and some changes that I like a lot less, basically. Um, especially, there seem to be a number of places where in second edition there are like specific um, mechanical or numerical bits that have been removed from third edition in favor of basically suggesting that the GM figure out what works for their game. And I think that is, I think it's fine to have the expectation that the GM, you know, figures out what is going to work for their game. But I do not quite like the idea of like not even having like a a mechanical suggestion there. I I feel like it would have been better to have, you know, the same numbers there and just say, you know, these are sort of optional. You can, you know, use these or tinker with them if you want, rather than just saying basically, you know, okay, you know, do whatever fits for your table and not even having kind of a, a suggestion for what might be a, sort of designed expectation fit, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, which is just one of those things that I am, yeah, kind of sensitive to, I know, but whatever, that's just part of me, um, which is to say that there's a part of me that is also sort of interested in moving away from that sort of, uh, from 3e uh, hyperborea third edition and going back to the hero's journey second edition and just using a lot of sort of stuff from hyperborea 3e especially the sort of like um some of this kind of more crunchy like combat procedure stuff that um seems like would be easy enough to bring into um the hero's journey second edition um, and that therefore that would, that seems to me like something that could work fairly well. Um, but I basically need to kind of sit down and do some tinkering and kind of figure out how not necessarily kind of exactly how well that's going to work, but get sort of a sense of, you know, how do I, you know, just from reading the book feel like that's going to work out and that therefore kind of how much do I want to do that versus tinkering with other options versus all of that sort of stuff. And the idea being that um, I think that would work a little bit better. And I think it'll interact a little better with some of my expected kind of procedures of play. Um, in particular, I think one of the things that I like a lot with the Hero's Journey second edition is a lot of the different classes have some sort of uh, kind of special ability that I think it would be kind of cool to have, especially for a lot of the kind of wilderness travel-y stuff that, you know, like every character has a certain like chance in six based on the situation, but that characters who have a special ability get a kind of their their additional chance in six based on their ability that is not modified by the situation. Um, and so, you know, especially that gets into the idea that, you know, high level like rangers are going to be really useful 
in, for instance, terrain that is normally very difficult to succeed at some of those um, elements and that, you know, that's going to be kind of a big thing that, you know, you, you know, even if you have a ranger, the ranger is going to give you a sort of bigger bonus once you, uh, once you get a couple of levels in ranger and are therefore able to uh, kind of, you know, have a, a better chance in six on that special ability, essentially, um, which I think is kind of an interesting idea in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm not I'm not entirely certain that that's what I'm going to do, but that's sort of where I'm leaning right now. And I don't necessarily need to decide right away, but it would be good to decide fairly soon so I can do some work on it. Um, but anyway, that's just one of those things that um, I need to figure out about. Aside from that, the biggest thing that I am sort of working on is um, I have a sort of project that I am interested in doing kind of long term. Um, and in particular, I ended up kind of talking about it on Twitter a little bit. And um, a friend of mine basically said, you know, if you want to collaborate on something like that, I think that would be really interesting to work together on. And I'm super excited about that. I, um, I think working with him is going to be really great. And the, the idea is to sort of do something related to the ideas around kind of teaching um, games, essentially teaching RPGs. Um, both from the perspective of uh, sort of a game master teaching their players at the table, as well as from the perspective of kind of a rule book teaching the reader how to play a game, essentially. The, the kind of ideas about like both sort of sitting around the table and explaining a game in a way that is, you know, fast enough to not kind of bore everybody and and gets into the action and all of that sort of stuff but that also allows for the players to you know make meaningful decisions and interact with the system in meaningful ways relatively quickly um and then simultaneously the kind of perspective of you know a, a a rule book explaining kind of here's how you play this game and that sort of stuff, right? Which is one of those things that I, I think is um, difficult to do well. And I, I will say I don't have any kind of particular uh, academic background on the subject, which is to say that I... Um, you know, I don't have like a degree or a certificate for teaching. Um, and I have not ever like taught a class for anything more significant than like doing a, a presentation in a class for a day on a specific subject. I had classes in, in college where, you know, part of the expectation was that sort of part of the teaching would be done by the the students that they would sort of uh, do like a presentation on a specific subject and, and sort of present on it and explain everything that the rest of the class needed to know. Um, 
partly to, you know, learn how to do that sort of thing yourself, right? That's a part of the point. Um, I did, however, go through, you know, 13 years of grade school in addition to, you know, four years of undergraduate and um, learned a lot from all of that. Um, and in particular, I think one of the big things is that I um, had some pretty significant um, privileged positions within both of those, which is to say that I, so I went to the kind of local elementary school for elementary school, but for middle school and high school, I went to a magnet school, um, which is, uh, for those of you who don't know, magnets are something that certain school districts, at least in the U.S. do. I don't know if they do in too much other places, um, but basically the idea is that a lot of the kids who perhaps do not need a lot of help uh, passing the various kind of standardized tests that are sort of the, the gateways for grade progression um, that they can go to these kind of special schools and uh, get a kind of different teaching experience in a lot of ways. Um, and I think one of the big things that I have recognized is the way in which, in my opinion, uh, a lot of the things that um, we got at the magnet school, I think would be really beneficial to almost every student um, rather than just being kind of reserved for magnet students um, and that uh, there is something kind of interesting there and especially a little bit weird the idea of like oh you kids are extra smart so we can you know teach you better than the other kids is one of those like that doesn't quite make sense right surely the kids who need more help are the ones who should be you know getting taught in these kind of more sophisticated ways is i think the big thing that it's not kind of just sort of resource management, it's also kind of um, style and, and process in a lot of ways that, you know, for instance, one of the big things with the Magnus School was that we did a whole lot of kind of project-based learning, a lot of kind of here's sort of a larger project, just kind of solve the problems that come up with the process of doing this project rather than kind of like, you know, sit down with a worksheet and fill out all the answers type thing. And that that's one of those things that, in my opinion, I think a lot of students can really benefit from. And in, in the same way, you know, my um, college experience had some similar advantages um, in particular. So I went to Rice University in Houston for undergraduate um, which was, was really wonderful. And, and Rice was a great place for me um, and all that sort of stuff. But Rice is also an expensive private school. I mean, they, they offer what they say is enough. Uh, it, it's a, a thing that a lot of the private schools do that um, basically they say will offer kind of as much 
um, need-based uh, monetary support to pay for tuition as uh, I think the term they use is demonstrated need. Um, but demonstrated need is one of those kind of iffy things that um, there's a lot of assumptions that go into demonstrated need. Um, and so in my case, it was, you know, I don't remember how much because I, I didn't deal with any of the monetary stuff, but that basically I, I had uh, some level of kind of money that my parents had put away into a college account for me. Plus um, my grandfather had kind of a big uh, business success um, while I was in high school. And he decided that part of what he wanted to kind of do with the money was to pay for his grandchildren's college. And so I got a lot of support there. And the result being, of course, that I was able to, to go to a school like Rice. And um, one of the big things is that I, um, you know, I had in particular a number of very, very small classes in terms of the number of students, right? That I, I think the smallest class that I ever had was four students. Um, I had a couple that ended up getting smaller, but there was a, a like a cutoff that Rice had that you couldn't have less than three undergraduates in any given class and have the class continue that they just, you know, if you got to two or less undergrads, they were like, yeah, we're going to take that off the registrar and uh, be done with that at a certain kind of, I think it was two weeks into the semester, which is at the end of the ad period for Rice, at least the way it was working. So the idea being that that's as large as the class is going to get at that point. So if it's too small at that point, it's not going to get any bigger. Um, anyway, um, the, the sort of point of all of that being that, you know, it's a very different experience being taught in a classroom with four undergraduates than being like taught in a lecture hall with 150 undergraduates. And I had a couple of classes that had uh, a lot of undergraduates, right? So like I took a microeconomics class that I think had 150 students in the uh, lecture hall. Um, and it was uh, very different than being in, you know, kind of like a, a seminar style room with a couple of other undergrads and a professor and having a much kind of more sort of, you know, especially kind of the, the sort of close relationship with the professor and, and the, the way that the professor who is teaching the class is likely to kind of, you know, focus on what the specific students in that class need is actually, um, as opposed to in a large lecture hall where there just isn't, it's not really nearly as possible to do that sort of thing. Um, so anyway, the, the point of all of that being that um, it's one of those things that I benefited a lot from and that I think um, it can sometimes be hard to recognize how much benefit 
you get from that sort of thing. And especially for people who didn't have that sort of experience, right? That people who went to college and were in, you know, triple digit class sizes for basically the whole time, that they may not have nearly as much sense of like how teaching works a little differently on that scale, essentially. Um, and that that scale of, you know, one professor and, you know, single digit undergraduates is obviously much, much closer to the scale of one game master and a table full of players. Um, and that therefore there are some kind of differences in the way that he, that the teaching seems to work at that scale. And I think it's worth kind of exploring some of that. Um, Anyway, so I'm, I'm really interested in doing some stuff on that. I need to talk with um, the, the particular friend that I was talking with about working on that. We need to kind of hash out kind of what we actually like, what we want to do and uh, what the process is going to be and all of that sort of stuff, which I think is going to be um, just fine. I think we're very much on the kind of same page about a lot of the stuff that we want from something like that. Um, but we do need to sort of you know, talk about it and put our cards on the table and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and if you, listener, are interested in anything like that, you should let me know as well, because I think it would be totally cool to have more people kind of talking about that sort of thing, um, especially um, I was thinking particularly of my buddy Che Webster, who is... Uh, A little busy with some real life stuff at present because he has changed jobs fairly recently. But at the same time, you know, he uh, might be able and might be interested in talking about he actually has been working as a teacher for a number of years now. And I think it would be really interesting to uh, talk with him about... Um, sort of process of teaching as he understands it. And I think that would be really interesting. I know at one point he was talking about doing a sort of teaching focused podcast to talk about kind of his experiences teaching. I think that would be really interesting to kind of have some discussion with him about that sort of thing. Um, so I guess I need to reach out to him as well. Um, and I guess we'll see what goes on with all of that but anyway that's sort of the the big stuff that is going on with me uh, there's a ton of kind of small things as usual i've got kind of a whole bunch of different sort of projects all kind of going on a little bit at the same time essentially i've, I've really embraced the idea of um using kind of detailed uh, note-taking and scheduling to allow for the kind of process of uh, having kind of a lot of things on the go without feeling overwhelmed, um, which is to say that I, uh, I feel like one of the things that has happened to me historically is that when I have like a whole bunch of projects that I want to work on, one of the things that happens is that I feel like I, you know, start losing track of everything that I'm working on in my head. And that as a result, um, one of the big things is that that can, you know, cause a lot of anxiety, um, especially when you get into, you know, it's a, it's a thing that um, I know I'm most familiar with it when talking about kind of 
creative writing, especially poetry writing, the idea that, you know, you may never capture a sentence again, right? That if you think up a specific sentence um, and you let it go, you may never get it again, right? And that can make it very difficult to determine whether the sentence that is on the page is the best that you could have written, right? Because if you can't remember the other versions of that sentence, you can't really um, judge whether the sentence that's on the page is the best one, right? And that I think that's a, a major cause of anxiety for a lot of writers who are really concerned with the kind of craft of, of writing beautiful sentences. And, and certainly that's something that I've experienced plenty of times when working on my own creative writing stuff is this sense of, you know, that, you know, I'll be kind of doing something and just sort of letting my brain wander and think up something that I feel like, oh my God, I have to write this down because I can't afford to lose this. Um, and that if you don't write it down and end up losing it, that that can be very kind of uncomfortable and anxiety producing. Um, and so I'm, it's part of why I'm trying to be a lot more deliberate about taking good notes and keeping track of my progress on various projects and all that sort of stuff so that I feel like I don't lose stuff, just things that were in my head that aren't anymore at some point um, that I don't need to kind of focus on keeping them in my head essentially. Cause I think that's another thing that um, I suspect everybody has some trouble with. And I think I was, uh, very gifted in a lot of ways at keeping a lot of stuff in my head for a long time. But on some level, it doesn't make any sense to do that, right? That it doesn't make any sense to be anxious about keeping uh, something in your head that you could just write down and reread when the time comes, right? And that's one of those things that I've kind of gradually come to realize, right? Why not just, you know, put that you need to pay X bill on X day on the calendar and have the calendar do the reminding for you instead of trying to keep track of that in your head and make sure you don't forget when the time comes, because that's one of those things that, you know, you really don't want to forget that sort of thing. So anyway, that's uh, all of that is to say that I've got a whole number of things going on and um, I'm making progress on a lot of them. All right, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's all I got for today. Um, yeah, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I thought it was good to talk about. Um, it's one of those things I feel like it's, you know, good to get uh, back in the habit of uh, some of these things that definitely improve my mood and especially my mental health, but that I can kind of end up getting... Uh, out of the habit of, right? That that's one of, again, one of those things that I'm really sort of trying to work on is being deliberate about my health and therefore, um, you know, trusting in the system that works and not kind of letting my level of relaxation or complacency um, translate into, um, systematic breakdown, essentially, or systemic breakdown, um, which is to say that, you know, in the same way that, you know, even if you feel good, you need to take your antidepressants so that you keep feeling good, um, or at least I need to take my antidepressants so that I keep feeling good. I, I also am 
you know, realizing the real benefit of kind of exercising a level of sort of deliberation and discipline around a lot of the habits that really help me. Um, and that, you know, that's one of those things that is not always kind of obvious, but is meaningful, I guess. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has kind of caused me to have issues a number of times is when I am kind of, you know, doing well, but get complacent and don't kind of put as much effort and focus into maintaining well-being, um, that that's, I think, one of the big things that can go wrong for me, right? Um, anyway, um, all of that is to say, um, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. I've got a number of um, call-ins that I need to uh, respond to soon-ish. I don't know exactly when um, that is going to happen. Um, I'm hoping to do that for either a Saturday episode this weekend or for um, whatchamacallit, uh, Tuesday next week. Um, that's one of those, uh, things that, um, you know, I, I, again, not entirely sure when it is going to happen, but, um, yeah, we will see what comes out of that sort of of stuff. Um, but I have a, yeah, I have a number of call-ins that I want to respond to. Um, a lot of kind of good stuff that people have called in about that I want to talk about. Um, and so we will see, um, when I get around getting into that sort of stuff, basically. Um, but yeah, aside from all that, uh, I hope you have enjoyed. If you want to get a hold of me, there are lots of ways to do so. Um, the obvious way here on Anchor is to leave a voicemail message, and I will respond to your voicemail message in an episode sometime. Um, maybe a little while, if uh, previous experience is any predictor of uh, future patterns, but you know... Um, I'll definitely do it at some point. Um, otherwise, I really hope that everyone is uh, doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, having lots of fun gaming, because all of those things are important in a lot of ways. Otherwise, um, yeah, I've been Alan Walker. I've been live from Helm's Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs>